You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Absolute privilege to be with you guys. Um, uh, although I haven't been in this new venue, I've just been hearing stories over and over about God's faithfulness that's at work in the midst of this community. And as I interact with Jared, um, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, kind of a phrase that one of my historical heroes, John Wimber, says often. He says, when do we get to do the stuff? And what I love about the Crossing Paragould is you are a church that loves to do the stuff. In the words of Titus, you are a church that's zealous for good works. And so your reputation goes out throughout the region. Stoked to be here, just to be able to come together, to partner together. Uh, Jared mentioned we were in the residency. So he was the kid in the front of the class that was taking the notes. And I was in the back, like maybe throwing paper wads a little bit. Um, but one of the things I remember particularly about the residency is Jared was kind of the aficionado of new music, right? So he was kind of known as that. Um, so I think... Uh, it's important that I say this from the outset. Um, last week, he used an illustration from Britney Spears, right? So I think the only, the only way that, that you could explain that is parenting. So welcome to life with multiple children. So it's great to see you. Um, but I'm excited to jump in your Daniel series here this morning. And I want to begin with a quote by a pastor named Alan Scott. This quote has served me well over the last couple of years. And he says, the story that we live in is the story that we live out. And what he means by that is we, the story that captures our heart ends up determining the direction of our lives, where we find our meaning and our purpose and our identity shapes how we actually live out our lives. And there are two major storylines in the Bible I know that you are very familiar with. The first is the story of God, where we are promised, even though every step of the journey may be difficult, may we encounter suffering and difficulty and pain, we have the promise of the presence of the King, and it produces the fruit of being with that King, love, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And then the other storyline that we can choose to live by is the kingdom of self. And it's all about self-promotion, self-congratulations. What can we do? Independence. And the natural fruit of that is disappointment and disillusionment and discouragement. And so the book of Daniel is all about finding our identity and living in this really this cultural Babylon that we find ourselves in so that we can live out the story of God. Now, this morning we're going to learn a theology lesson from the king of Babylon himself in Daniel chapter 4. He's going to teach us what real worship is all about. As you've been learning throughout the weeks, Babylon is not just a historical geographic location But it's a way of thinking that seeks to press us into its mold. It wants to steal joy from us. 
But God is here and he's present today with us to set us free. Daniel chapter 4 is all about freedom, but to encounter that freedom, we're going to have to encounter the darkness that lives inside of all of us. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you can, to Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read a long passage of scripture this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read to verse 17. Notice this is written from King Nebuchadnezzar's own hand. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid, and as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came... I told them the dream, but when they could not interpret it for me, finally Daniel Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. Verse 10, these are the visions that I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. The height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and it touched the top of the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and on it for food for all. Under the wild animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there was before me a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones, declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of peoples. Would you pray with me? Father, so much we want to understand your word. Even reading a word like this can produce um, just a, a desire to understand and to draw near, but also a degree of fear and trepidation. I pray that by your presence, 
you would shed light on your word. More than that, I pray that you would perform this word in us so that we can rejoice and we can be your people and we can live a life that is set free. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. That could have been Brittany calling right on the front row. So, all right, we're ready to go. So Daniel chapter 4 is not a chapter probably on a Tuesday morning that you're going to think, you're going to meditate on. Um, there's some dark imagery here, um, but there also is this invitation for us as the people of God to set our eyes on the true king, right? The key to living in Babylon is not just some form of self-discipline so that we keep ourselves together, but it's actually to have our hearts and our eyes fixed on the true king, right? So as we lift up our eyes and we see him and his presence is at work among us, he actually begins to change us from the inside out. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the, the framework for the exile, that the people of God were sent into exile, is redemptive, right? So, This shows us that there's not any length that God will not go to to set his people free. Exile is meant to be redemptive. He changes his people from the inside out. And the purpose of this exile is that coming out 70 years later is going to be a remnant. I know that's language that you have used before. A remnant is a small group of people that are oriented to listening to the voice of God, responding to the voice of God, operating in the power of the Holy Spirit together so that they can bring revival, right? Remnants lead to revival. So all of this living in Babylon is not just for us to endure, but it's actually a season that we can show the world the beauty and the power of our King. So this is not just about us being transformed into the image of Jesus, which it absolutely is, but it's so that we can show the world just how wonderful he is. So living in exile presents us both with tremendous pressure and unprecedented opportunities to display the beauty of our king. Now, unless you've been living (laughs) under a rock somewhere, it's not difficult to for you to identify with the pressures of living in 2020 and early 2021. They are everywhere, right? Depression is on the rise. Discouragement, right? Um, Financial pressures. Friends leaving. Difficulties inside the church. All of these things are taking front and center for the people of God. So there are tremendous pressures living in Babylon But what I don't want you to miss this morning is there is an unprecedented opportunity for us in 2021 to display the beauty of our King, right? So in the midst of all of these things, we get to show the world just how wonderful Jesus actually is. So he wants to set us free from all the idols of Babylon so we can show that he is the true King. So this is a tremendous opportunity to be alive and be in the church. And what I honestly believe that God's doing in my church, and I know he's doing in your church, is he's creating this new wineskin. Are you familiar with that language? The wineskin of worldly power has left people empty and unsatisfied. 
The wineskin of religion is absolutely morally bankrupt. And what God wants to do out of the midst of all of that devastation, living in exile, is create this people of God that show and declare His glory and His beauty to the world. So the big idea that we're going to look at this morning is Babylon exposes the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. This storyline begins in the king, um, in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent actually introduces death into the story. And parallel along with that is the promise of life that comes from the kingdom of God. And those two storylines run throughout the storyline of Scripture. And the battlefield actually is in the middle of our own hearts. So we are all each facing every day the battle between living for the kingdom of ourselves and living for the kingdom of God. One of my favorite authors, Paul Tripp, says this. He says, Each of us is shaped by the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self focuses in more on what the hands can touch than what the heart should embrace. So we all are tempted to live for our own kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar's own story is an illustration of the dangers of living for the kingdom of ourselves. This is written by Nebuchadnezzar um, by himself. This is about 20 years after chapter 3 that you guys looked at, um, maybe last week. And the reality is that this story in particular exposes us to the reality of God's faithfulness. 20 years after Daniel chapter 3, you can imagine that the people of God have been in exile for a long time. I'm guessing they're thinking at this point, are we ever going to get out of here? Right? You may not be facing Nebuchadnezzar himself, but there are pockets in our own lives where you wonder, can this really change? Right? There's things that go on in our marriages and patterns that we all experience where we wonder if we could really change. When you have a kid that begins that you've poured the gospel into and you begin to see them walk another way, like you're wondering, can these kinds of things really change? If you have long-standing sin patterns that you have begged and cried and pleaded with God to help you with, and you haven't really changed, in those moments... We don't just need to double down on self-discipline. We need a fresh glimpse of the king. And that's what Daniel chapter 4 leads us into. This story is to show us the beauty of the true king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is having trouble sleeping. I don't know if anybody can identify any young parents in the room, right? <laughs> Absolutely. But Nebuchadnezzar's problem sleeping wasn't just because kids were keeping him up at night. Nebuchadnezzar's problem sleeping was that he had this dream. Now, I'm going to be honest at the beginning. Like, this dream doesn't seem that scary to me. So, I, I mean, it must have been the way that the dream was delivered. But um, I, I kind of got the picture of the tree of life in Animal Kingdom. I think we've got maybe a little photo of that for you guys. Um, yeah. So that's like, you know, so if you've ever been to Disney's Animal Kingdom, uh, I think this is about 145 feet tall. You can see it from any point in the park. So Nebuchadnezzar's having a dream of a tree like this, 
But the tree that he has a dream of is actually fills the entire earth. So you can multiply it at least three times bigger than that, right? So this is a picture of this enormous tree. And this angel or this messenger from heaven comes in and says, I want you to chop down the tree. And he he can't get anyone to be able to uh, actually unpack the meaning of the dream. And so he calls in Daniel. And this is what he says to Daniel. Or this is what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the interpretation of the dream. He says, Your majesty, you are the tree. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, this is the decree of the Most High he has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people. You will live with the wild animals. You will... Do your best, less miles from LSU impersonation. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Sorry, I, so it always helps like if the audience laughs at the joke. So I know you guys don't know me. I have to do this at my own church, but that's totally fine. You will be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass over you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Yeah. So, 12 months later, I want you to notice the kingdom of self-language. This is when judgment actually falls on Nebuchadnezzar. And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace. He says, Is this not great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox seven times or this perfect time will pass for you you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and He gives it to whom He wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So this is a picture of the judgment of God. This is a picture of utter and total humiliation. And what is the root cause of all of this is Nebuchadnezzar is building a kingdom For his own glory. And listen. I would love to tell you. That this is just a struggle for Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to be 100% honest. 
Nebuchadnezzar lives inside of me, right? I was sitting with my wife on the couch last night, and I'm saying, you know what? Actually, I'm a little bit nervous to go and speak, you know, at Jared's church. I said, these people don't know me, and I have my own battle. And all the things that I was thinking about was about myself. It wasn't about the kingdom of God. It wasn't about blessing you, but it was about how you would perceive me, right? The kingdom of self is a battle that each of us are tempted to have each and every day. It's about how much we can achieve. It's about how much we can accumulate. It's about all the things that we can do. And it robs us and blinds us from seeing the majesty and the beauty of the true king. Right? So what God wants to do is give us a picture of what the true king is like. Now, I know that because we're in the South, we know the right answer is to say that we're living for the kingdom of God. Right? And listen, I'm sure like me... That it's in there somewhere, right? If you're in this room, that's probably your main desire. But the reality is, oftentimes, the kingdom gets put second, third, fourth. And honestly, I think a lot of it comes with this, this southern misnomer. I don't know if you were taught this, but I, I think it's, it, it's part of your inheritance as a southerner. It, it says we put Jesus first, right? Then, what is it? We put others or we, we put our family second, we put others third, and then we put ourselves last, right? So what's the problem if we view Jesus as the first of our priorities? Well, I'll try to explain it to you. <laughs> Part of the problem if you make Jesus just the top of a list of priorities is that he's always constantly... So when you go to take care of your family, right then Jesus could get moved down here. Or if you go to take care of other people, then Jesus could get moved down here. So you end up with this life where you're trying to juggle different priorities, right? Where you're trying to do different things. But the picture that we have in the book of Daniel is that God is absolutely sovereign, that He is huge, that He is majestic, that He is worthy of all glory and dominion. So instead of putting Jesus first on a list of priorities, Jesus is Lord. He's central. He touches every single thing that we have. So instead of Jesus being the first on the list, he's actually central. And he affects who I am. And he affects how I lead my family. And he affects how I work out my career and all of these types of things. So God wants to allow himself to be enthroned on our lives. When we make Jesus first on a list of priorities... We shrink God down to the size of our lives, right? Instead of being the king over all the universe, he just becomes a divine helpmate to help us get through, right? Instead of joining him and building his kingdom, we invite him to help us build our kingdom. And that shift is very subtle. He's meant to touch every single thing in our lives. So I want to give you a couple of examples work, our careers, right? We give them almost godlike power over our lives. We force them to give us meaning and significance. We want them to give us joy. We want to, them to give us our status in relation to other people. 
Our careers are almost sovereign over the course of our lives. We assume that our careers, like if we get a promotion somewhere, then that is absolutely has to be from the Lord, right? Because he obviously wants his people to prosper. But the problem is oftentimes the kingdom of God takes a back seat to our careers. And so you could be planted in this wonderful, beautiful local church that's on mission. And you let your career move you around enough times and you'll just say, well, I'll find a place that I can plug in when I get there, right? What would it be like if we as the people of God said, no, listen, I'm going to use my career in a way that advances the kingdom of God. It's not going to be third down on the list. We'll find a church when we get there. But we're actually going to pray and ask God, what does it mean for us to be the sent people of God? We're going to ask God, how can we thrive in the midst of Babylon? What if this entire church said, listen, apart from (laughs) um, a divine intervention from God and participating in community. Hey, we're, we're not going anywhere. Like we're all in here and we're going to stay here until God makes it clear that my move is going to be for the advancement of the kingdom. What kind of difference could that make in our thinking as we put the kingdom of God central? The second, I would say, um, that almost goes without question is we can put our families at the center right? So I wish I would say I was immune to this. Um, but there comes a point in most people's lives, like if life doesn't cha- turn out the way that you want it to, then you start to live vicariously through your kids, right? And so all the hopes and dreams and aspirations that you had for yourself, you actually begin to put on them. And although we might say that we're putting them in a million different activities so that they can develop as people, really we want them to make us look good, right? And so I'll give you an example. It's probably two years ago. I was on an elders retreat. We had this powerful, wonderful time of prayer. I mean, we were almost in the third heaven. Not, I kid you not, right? <laughs> and right after that, I was the coach of my son's sixth grade basketball team. And so I leave this elders retreat. I show up like a hero to the basketball game. I believe this was some kind of trophy game. Um, and, and it just so happened that that game, we were playing a team that was bigger than us on the basketball court stronger than us. And our guys, I mean, they basically looked like they were rag dolls out there every time these guys moved. So I was getting frustrated because they weren't really calling any fouls. And it just so happens that my son Hudson was moving right in front of the bench where I was seated. A kid literally stuck out his foot and he tripped him like right in front and and the referee was right here and he didn't say anything. And so it was at that moment that it was my duty to everyone in the stadium to do my best Bobby Knight impression, right? So I came up, not not, not just up off the bench, I came onto the floor. I I literally considered throwing a chair at this point. And I stepped in and I said, and I was so frustrated. I don't, if you know me very well, that doesn't happen a lot. So I was like, he tripped him, right? And so promptly I got a technical foul, right? And then, so the rest of the game, I mean, we didn't win the game. I had to pull the boys aside at the end, right, and ask them to forgive me. I asked the people in the stands to forgive me. 
I went to the referee and asked him to forgive me. And it was this wonderful picture of how God uses our failures more than he does our successes, right? But in that moment, it wasn't just me. I wish I could say I wanted to protect my son. That was in there. But at the end of the day, I was frustrated because we were losing the basketball game, right? And that's how subtle the kingdom of self is. So God wants to set us free. So instead of putting our kids in a million activities, I'm not against activities, but what is the goal of parenting? Right? The goal of parenting is Psalm 127. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Right? So you're supposed to pull back the bow, your kids are arrows, and you're supposed to launch them into the kingdom of God. Right? It's not an afterthought. So we want to put them in avenues where they can encounter the king. Right? And we always have to ask ourselves, what is our definition for success for our children? Like, would you be okay if they didn't earn a lot of money, but they were sold out to Jesus? Right? Would you be okay, like, if they struggled financially, but they thrived spiritually? Right? So, we always want to be making decisions that push forward the kingdom of God. So, listen, I know all of that is kind of the, that's the exposing part of this message. Now I want to take us into the liberating part of this passage. The answer to self-exaltation and the kingdom of self is God-exaltation, right? The way out is worship, right? So listen, we have this opportunity as the, king, as the people of God, living in the kingdom of God. The song that we were singing about this, this morning, that the sound of heaven can come forth from this room. Do you believe that this morning? That the song that you sing can affect the city that's out there. Right? What God wants to do in this moment is for us to take our eyes off of our little kingdom living so that we can make Him our boast. Boast in His salvation. Boast in His mercy. Boast in all of the things that He has done for us. And as we do that, people see the beauty of the King, right? When we live inside the little kingdom, all we do is we see the kingdom of ourselves and everything points to back to ourselves and the way that we do things. God wants to set us free so that we can make much of Him. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word workmanship means we are His masterpiece. So if you take that on a corporate level, that means there are songs that the, that the Crossing Church of Paragould is designed to sing to the city out there. Right? If you take this on an individual level, there are only songs that you can sing and there are only prayers that you can pray that advance the kingdom of God. So how we move the kingdom forward is by placing the king in his proper place. And this begins, as the Sermon on the Mount says, in the secret place. Right? When no one else is around... Right? When no one's watching, we develop a secret history of God. And then when we come back together into this place, then the roof can be pushed off of this place because the song of people have been captivated by the truth of the beauty of the king. Worship is not about us. Right? Worship is about him. 
Like we come into this room on a Sunday morning to minister to God. Is that how you view worship? We're not just reminding ourselves of truth, which we are, but we are touching the heart of God. That is the way and that is the key to living free in Babylon is to be captivated by the reality of the king. And that's exactly what happened for Nebuchadnezzar. There's a song that only you can sing. But this also changes how we relate to the world and to our neighbors. So this is the reason that Nebuchadnezzar encountered such difficulty. Look at verse 27 with me. This is before judgment came. Daniel offered Nebuchadnezzar a way of escape. He says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Now, history tells us that earthly kings and rulers built their kingdoms on the back of the poor and the oppressed. The way of escape here is to show mercy to the oppressed, which brings me to my next point. The kingdom of self blinds us to the needs of those around us while the kingdom of God compels us to care for those on the margins. Right? So listen to this quote from Derek Worthington. This is little kingdom stuff. In the world of self, the people around us are nothing more than the supporting cast in a movie called My Life. Background extras, recurring roles. But it's really about you, and they come and go, cameo appearances and the little vignettes in the story of you. So the temptation of Babylon is to focus on ourselves to the exclusion of other people. Babylon wants to blind us to the needs of other people. But the kingdom of God is here to set us free to care for those that are on the margins. So as I was talking to Jared this week, I mean, he said, you guys are setting aside focused time for your missional communities to see how to engage those that are on the margins. And that is um, an amazing truth. But to do this, I think there are a couple of obstacles we have to overcome. The first is the idea of caring for those on the margins is a biblical one, not a political one, right? This is not, this is not about politics. This is about the heart of God himself. He identifies himself as the father of orphans and the defender of widows, right? When Jesus came into the world, he said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor, Right, So there is something about this message of the gospel that compels us to go to the margins. And I know that that is on your heart as well. But there's this real temptation in our hearts that I think all of us have. And it's this myth of the deserving poor. Right? Who is worthy of our help? Right? And, 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 and honestly, Christians sometimes are the worst at this. Because we believe, honestly, like where we are in life is because like we worked hard, right? We probably studied hard. Um, you know, we maybe made the right connections. And when we see someone that's in a place of need, our first assumption is it's probably their fault, right? They made bad choices to get where they are. Listen, 
If there's anything that the people of God are meant to be known for, it is this story of radical grace. We have all received what we don't deserve, which is the grace of God. He didn't ask us to clean ourselves up. No, we were in the pits. We were in the muck. We were in the mire. We didn't deserve his help or his mercy, but he came to look for us. And that same kind of culture is meant to permeate who we are as the people of God. Now, everyone universally believes, like, if there is a a six-year-old child and he's in a home... And the parents are neglecting him, and he doesn't have any food, doesn't have any shelter, is in great need that we should help that child, right? But what happens when that six-year-old turns 18 and has bounced from house to house, as an 18-year-old tries to navigate his way in the world, falls in with the wrong crowd, and at 18 is an addict, right? We are thrilled to help the six-year-old, right? We are less apt to help the 28-year-old, and we don't draw the connection between all of the things that have taken place in that story, right? God wants to liberate us to care for his people. Listen to this quote from Natalie Williams. She's from a group called Jubilee Plus, which has helped my church tremendously. They are a group out of London. She says, the world treats people based on their behavior, Christians are meant to treat others on the basis of God's behavior, right? That's our heart as a community. We want to treat people the way that God sees them, right? Not by our own moral code. So living in the kingdom means going to those on the margins. This kind of transformation only happens as we see the truth of the real king. This kind of transformation happened for Nebuchadnezzar as his eyes were opened to see the king of glory. Because listen, there was another king that came that was different than Nebuchadnezzar. Instead of exalting himself to the highest place, he took the lowest place, right? He took on the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And listen, when we are in the presence of that kind of humility... That kind of love, hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. People that love to exalt themselves begin to exalt in mercy. The king has come. So as we look to him, it changes how we interact in Babylon. I want to close by hearing Nebuchadnezzar's repentance. And I think that this is here because... I think God wants to communicate to everyone in the room that he can change the hardest of hearts. Verse 34 says, And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. So seven years, crawling around on the ground like an animal. My sanity was restored. First thing out of his mouth, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. 
My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So this is a theology lesson from the King of Babylon that invites us to place all of our worship and all of our trust in the true king. All right, let's pray. Father, we so love you. We want you to work in our lives in such a way that we would be free from living for the kingdom of ourselves, that we would be set free to love and serve other people. I pray that you would take the things that we tend to place at the center of our lives and displace that with a beautiful picture of Jesus and his power. Lord, we love you and we trust you to set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.